Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a good week. We're about to have a better week because we have a, a guest speaker here this morning. Um, nice break for you guys and for us. Anyway, Alison Lefebvre is here. She's a good friend of ours from out west, Didsbury. Yeah, do you know where Didsbury, Manitoba is? Oh, you, you guys do. Alberta, sorry, Alberta. That's why you don't know where it is. Because I'm in the wrong province. Didsbury, yeah. So people know where that is. That's awesome. And Allison is uh, working with the EFG. I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of an acronyms. Uh, EFG, the Evangelical EFC, Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, which is uh, working on seven commitments, part of a reconciliation with our First Nations um, family. And uh, Allison's been part of that conversation. And so she's also guiding the conversations of healing with Indigenous people with the EMCC, which is another an acronym, the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. <laughs> Too many, I know. Let's change these names, like Bob. Right? <laughs> Bob would be good. But that's what Allison does as her uh, work. But she is a fantastic presence, someone that we uh, appreciate being near. Her presence is wonderful, and uh, we're just thankful she's here. I'm with you so often, you guys. You don't know it, because I'm one of the people who are at home. Sometimes it's Wednesday morning while I eat my breakfast. I hope you don't hold that against me, but I'm always grateful to be part of Royal City and the friends here, and we have, we have just lots we share, it seems like. Well, I was pretty sure that it was him. I hadn't actually seen him up close before, but I had heard so many stories that a pretty vivid picture had formed in my mind. I'd caught glimpses through the crowds as he had entered Jerusalem yesterday, riding on that donkey's colt, on a colt. If he was the Messiah, I don't know, I'd have expected a war horse, but still, so many people think that he's the one that we've been waiting for. And now it seemed like I was struggling with that same crowd as I tried to follow him and his friends. I wasn't really surprised when he entered the temple because that's where everybody was going and I squirmed my way past the jostling and groped my way along the stone wall. My fingers were finding the cracks in the rocks and helping pull my body along. The temple was crowded here as it always was. And most of us who didn't have or couldn't afford an offering would come to courts to try and pray with the Gentiles and sometimes those who were sick, but there were always so much noise. People selling, buying, exchanging their money. It was always such a circus at festival time with court jesters occupying all available space. I ducked under the elbow of someone who was bickering over the price of some doves they were wanting, trying to get closer to where I could see that the teacher had stopped. I could see that he was looking for something. What, I wondered. I slid in closer as I tried to get a better look and watched him gather. What was that in his hand? And then I saw him stand. He had some cords in his hand, and he was kind of working with them, looking up at the crowds every moment or two, and then back down to the work in his hands. And after a time, I could see him shake something out, and then before I knew what was happening, just a huge crack filled the air. And then, wait, were tables being knocked over? I pushed my way through the crowd again to find the source of the noise and confusion, and I found it was the teacher. 
money was being poured out and tables were being flipped over as the whip he had made cracked the air again. It was utter chaos. People were scrambling, some trying to gather what they could of their goods before he looked their way again. I looked closely at his face. Were those tears? Maybe not, maybe just sweat, but his eyes, they were more than angry. They were distressed deeply, some kind of a mix between angry and totally filled with sorrow. I stood frozen in place, and as the merchants ran for cover and cleared out of the temple court, I saw others come. Those who were outside began to come in. The sick, the old, the children, the poor, all with their eyes fixed on the same man I had just been watching. I looked back at him and saw the anger soften and a gentle smile begin to cross his lips. There was a tenderness in his eyes as he set aside the whip and reached out his hand. Something about that story of Jesus in the temple when he's so angry, it always catches me off guard. I'm always a little bit surprised. I think because it's so emotional, right? It's almost like spontaneous, explosive frustration. And I mean, I can relate to that. But as I look closer, I see that Mark's account has Jesus visit the temple one day and then return the next morning. And in John's account, he explains that Jesus actually took the time to fashion a whip, which my imagination tells me it includes looking for supplies that he would need, finding space, and taking the time to actually weave it all together. The tables were turned over, the money dumped onto the ground, and jesters chased out into the street. And now in my mind, it doesn't feel so uh, surprising because I see it all unfolding with intentionality, with its intensity under control. And that's unnerving, I think. So scholars have different ideas about what it was that Jesus was reacting to so strongly. There's some belief that this incident took place in what has been described as the court of the Gentiles, which was a large outer court that some say covered several acres. It was a space that was reserved for non-Jews. And some even said that it was reserved for the sick. It was a place where those on the margins, on the fringes, could observe and participate in the temple ceremony. Sometimes it was used as a shortcut. People would just kind of cut through there, carrying merchandise between the city and the Mount of Olives. And what had happened there was that it had become a place where people could buy what they needed, including the sacrifices, if they needed them to participate in celebrations like doves for people who couldn't afford something more substantial, right? Often those were women. And people would come to the temple from far and wide, and so bringing their own livestock um, was difficult, and it was impractical, and so purchase was actually necessary. And because Galilean towns all had their own currency, they would have had to change their money to the local currency to make the purchases that were needed, just like we would if we went to the States, right? So the activities that were happening were necessary for many of those who wanted to participate. And so custom, you know, it just had happened that it was convenient for it to happen or take place right there. 
the thing is, is that, that the temple at that time served as the place where heaven met earth. This was where people had an opportunity to meet with the creator of all, to commune with him. It was a place for new beginnings for everybody, of settled accounts, of loads lifted. But this area, this space that was dedicated to those on the fringes, those who wanted to find that same sense of renewal, it had become a circus. Rather than room for contemplation, celebration, it had become dedicated to business and profit-making. I don't know, maybe it wasn't what was happening, but where those things were happening that Jesus took serious issue with. Necessary activities had taken on a different tone and had come to distort a holy place a place intended for reconciliation and communion. The sanctuary had become a circus. I don't know, maybe Jesus knew that in a few days he was going to destroy the whole system, um, get rid of all its weaknesses, and usher in a completely new day. He was crucified just a few days later. And while he was on earth, what so many people didn't yet understand was that actually he was the expression of heaven and earth coming together, the fully fused, embodied presence of God. And ultimately, the Spirit would come, and that heaven and earth fusion would then take place in us. That's crazy. We become the place where heaven and earth meet. We become the love of God enfleshed image bearers doing the work that he set in motion when he came to earth with skin on in the body of Jesus. No pressure, everybody. On our chalkboard at home, my husband has written out Romans 8.28. And I know that if we were to read it, or if you read it in your Bible, you'll read something like, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, right? That's familiar. But that's not what my husband Mark wrote. What he wrote is this. In all things, God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. Below that, he wrote, N.T. Wright, better translation. It's actually a note in the, in the New Revised Standard Version. It says that ancient texts actually do um, translate it that way, which is where N.T. Wright was coming from. And it's something that he ends up talking a lot about N.T. Wright. He talks about our vocation. He talks about the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection did a lot more than ensure that we would be forgiven and go to heaven when we die, even though that's true. What Jesus' death ushered in is a new way of being human, a vocation that finds its characteristics in being image bearers of the Creator, to be filled with the Spirit, moving in the world, participating in Creator's purposes. Jesus came to restore, to renew, to reconcile. He came to recreate and restory, and that's what he invited us into when he invites us to follow him, a new way of being human. That is the embodied fusion 
of heaven and earth. Again, I just want to say, you know, no pressure, because it sounds overwhelming, it sounds daunting, it sounds impossible. The temple itself in Jesus' time on, on earth wasn't doing a great job, and now here I am walking around as a mixed bag of, I don't know, some successes, lots of failures, of glories and grief, and here I am often just trying to sort out how to navigate well from day to day. And what I'm supposed to be doing is being the living representation of the living God. It may all be different for you. But I'm, I'm just, as I wrestle with it, as I ask questions about that, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe we overcomplicate it. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And looking at him and his life gives us good clues about what was important to him. And if we go back to Genesis, we see a very clearly laid out sense of all that God made and how God feels about it. Behold, he saw that it was good. Did you know that that word good also means beautiful and functioning how creator intended? God saw that it was good and beautiful and functioning how creator intended. And so I'm wondering if maybe a new way to be human, being the image bearers of God, has something to do with working as he did toward things that are beautiful and functioning the way they were intended. So the past couple of years, I've been spending some time reading and listening to somebody named Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson is actually a psychiatrist and a Jesus follower. And he talks a lot about beauty. Have you heard of him, Kevin? No, oh, right. It's... And the cool thing about Kurt Thompson is he understands how the brain works. He understands how our central nervous system functions. <clears throat> and he understands how beauty impacts us. And how it is a critical part of helping us to, t to contribute to the recreating and restoring that we've been invited to be part of. Beauty, he says, draws our attention with wonder and welcome that leads ultimately to worship. And what he explains is that our nervous system, system actually functions from bottom to top and from right to left. He says, first we sense all our, all our five senses. If I try and list them, I'll forget one and I'll be embarrassed. First we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. He says that an encounter with beauty informs what happens in that thinking, rational part of our brain. That a beautiful sunset, a work of art, or music impacts how we see the world, how we understand it, and it provides inspiration for our imagination and even our problem solving. We can imagine different ways of doing things when we allow beauty to nurture and inform our processing. Thompson quotes 12th or 20th century theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. And he talks about the critical place of beauty, goodness, and truth in both philosophy and theology in the Western world. And he says that much of Western philosophy and theology would place high value on all three of those, but what they would do is place truth in the primary place of importance. 
But Balthazar, says Thompson, turns this around and says that before we can think, we must first encounter things with our senses. Which fits with what Kurt Thompson says about first we sense and then we make sense of what we sense. So beauty is what draws us first to goodness and then enables us to comprehend what is true. It's a lot, and it's too much for this morning, but is it enough to know that participating as the place where heaven meets earth, as God's image bearers, moving as God's image bearers in the world, seeking to participate in the recreation and restoration of all things, can be led, maybe governed, and shaped by beauty? So I realize I'm kind of preaching to the choir. Because this is one of your key values, right? Beauty, justice, relationship. It's just becoming real for me. One night while we were out camping, uh, a couple of months ago, a few of us who had been up late and stayed around the fire decided to head off to the outhouses, you know, 20 or 30 meters away. And my son is six foot five, so we all made him go with us. Um, no one wanted to go, to go alone, but as we got to the road, the trees parted and the sky above us opened up and the stars were brilliant and thick and dense as they, as they are when there's less light pollution, right? It was stunning. And it was so breathtaking that our necks were getting sore from looking up and we all decided to lay on the concrete. Um, soaking it all in, and at one point, this, this most vivid, thick, vibrant meteor went across the sky, and, and you know, one person flipped over wondering if we'd all seen that. We, we were still kind of carrying that through the next day, right, as we continued to, to just be uh, surrounded by wonder. The psalm writer in Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. When I give myself an opportunity to open up to the mystery of God, to the wonder of the works of his hands, I get a, a sense, an inclination of what he is capable of. And that fosters and ignites hope. But actually what Kurt Thompson says is that it does more than that. It actually impacts the function of our brain, how we see things. It impacts how we approach problems, how we solve them, what we expect to solve how we expect to solve them, and it changes how we see each other. Whatever is true, writes Paul in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about can be understood to mean take account of. Notice, consider intentionally. In these days of lots of noise, in the jarring, polarizing conversations and frightening headlines, 
Beauty becomes oxygen to weary hearts and like fresh water to thirsty souls. And beauty takes so many forms, right? From those stars that night in the campground, from the incredible, incredible glow of the sun at the end of the day, or fragrant blooms in a garden, art created by paint or music or clay. But it's also found in muffins, in a meal provided by a friend, in conversation and laughter enjoyed over a cup of coffee, in the way dew glints on the intricacies of a spider's web in the morning sun. So what if we understood that beauty could nurture the way that we've been invited to move in the world? Could nurture the recreating that Jesus began while he moved among us? This isn't about everybody becoming an artist. Maybe we do intentionally take a minute to smell the flowers and maybe we plant a few and maybe we take time to pause and breathe deeply the fragrant air after our rain. We slow down enough to pay attention. We listen. We notice. We wonder. Maybe we can even begin to look for ways that our interactions with one another can become places of cultivated beauty. All of our interactions, even the ugly ones, even the messy ones, if we consider beauty as a framework, we can look for ways that our engagements, the ways we move together, foster beauty. How we think about each other, how we speak to one another, how we listen. In May and June of 1992, the cellist Vidrin Smilovich played Albinoni's Adagio in G minor in the ruins of Sarajevo for 22 days, uninterrupted after a mortar shelling killed 22 people in a market as they were waiting for food. With snipers and artillery still firing in the city, he played amid the rubble of his town. While all around him tragedy and affliction were the only daily story with no end in sight, his response was to create and offer beauty. It didn't stop the shelling, but it changed the trajectory of everybody's attention. The other quote on the chalkboard in my kitchen right now comes from Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. And it's from the, from the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's a point in the story when the characters are weary and they're afraid. And it's when Haldir is talking to Mary, and what he says is that, though in all the lands where the world is indeed, starting from the beginning, the world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places. But still there is much that is fair. And though in all the lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. Though in all the lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. I love that one of your espoused values is beauty. I love all of them, like I said, but this one, maybe it's shaped your story more than you've known, in ways you haven't known, maybe you do know. Exactly, and I'm the one who's just catching on. 
this story that we're part of, this story of God coming to earth with skin on so that we could know his love, his presence, his healing, he hope, his hope, this is a beautiful story. Even in the darkest rubble, it's still a beautiful story. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes we get so overwhelmed by what we're supposed to do, uh, things that we're supposed to make happen, and we forget that your design was to come and fill us with your spirit and lead us to move differently in the world, maybe even help the world move differently at times. Would you help us know what that means for us? Take us to the very smallest details and places in our lives, the most stressful, the most hurtful, the most grief-laden. Take us to those places. Help us know how we bring beauty into those spaces. And we bring your love and your light and your goodness with us as we go. May you continue to guide this wonderful group of people. Lead them with wisdom, with, some term, with discernment, with grace. And may beauty continue to, um, to just color all the spaces here. In Jesus' name. Amen.